Vice Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation, your home for the greatest show on earth. And we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews. Big interview today to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of APR in times of PBR. I hope you're having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I know I did. Today is a super, super exciting day. We get to hang out and have a conversation with somebody that's just... uh, a legend in this space, and we're going to deviate from the normal format. We're going to take a break from the character series because uh, I don't want you to miss a thing. We're going to do the next two episodes having a conversation with an amazing individual. This gentleman is the founder of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, uh, also known as AUKUS, former president of the Knee Society, Journal of Arthroplasty, founding editor Best Doctors in America, over and over and over. Founder of Operation Walk, a 58-page CV. Unbelievable. And you probably know who I'm talking about already. Dr. Lawrence Dorr. Dr. Larry Dorr. So before we get to the interview, I've got to tell you a funny story. A radiology tech who just has quite the sense of humor was working in a troke nail with a surgeon. And whenever the surgeon would say picture, there was like this delay between the time he said it and the time that the picture actually showed up on the screen. And the surgeon asked him, what's going on with the delay? And the radiology tech said, well, this is the voice-activated system. Whenever you say something, if your voice is deeper, uh, it takes a little bit more time for the system to recognize it. For some inexplicable reason, the, the higher the pitched voice, it starts to register quicker for some reason. So dutifully, the surgeon began modulating his voice throughout the case, and by the end of it, it was like, picture, picture. And of course, the tech was going along with it and immediately pushing the button whenever he said it so as to validate this insanity. So this story was so funny to me, and I started thinking about it. We have to crowdsource these stories because they're all across this country. So what we're going to do is put together a special episode of just things like that. Stories that you've heard over your career, maybe you're involved in it, or maybe you just heard it from somebody else that that you think, this has got to get out there because it's just too funny, right? So here's the rules. No names, no facilities, no doctor's names, no company names, no anything. Totally anonymous. And what I want you to do is write this number down, 251-333-8423. That's 251-333-84123. And if you really want to get cute with it, uh, I did this on purpose, 2513-DEVICE. 2513 device and leave me a voice message. Uh, This is a Google Voice number set up specifically for this, and then I can lift the voice files off. And we're going to do an episode of just uh, humor, Uh, humor in the OR, humor around this business. And I I can't wait for that episode. That's going to be a lot of fun. Get to work on that, and let's get to work listening to what Dr. Larry Dorr has to say. Uh, Dr. Dorr, thank you so much for being part of this program. Thank you. What an honor to have you on the show and hear about your storied career. Uh, I look forward to asking you about the APR HIP, uh, Operation Walk, Bishop Rocky. But first, I want to go way back 
and I want to hear what was it like growing up in the Door household? <laughs> well, uh, it was full of love, so that was uh, very beneficial for me. I, I I had parents who encouraged me all the time, and I lived in small towns in Iowa up until junior high, and uh, so I think I had some benefit too. You know, it was uh, I've always felt I had to make my own play because in those small towns, most of my classmates were on the farm and, uh, they went home after school. And so it wasn't like I had a lot of anybody to play with in town. Uh, I kind of had to make my own play and there wasn't any TV and, uh, video games or any of that stuff. So I made most of it outdoors. I played a lot of Cowboys. I was, I was the best Cowboy in the world when I was growing up. I was the fastest gun (laughs) in the world. You wouldn't want to, take me on. But I think that that helped my creativity a lot. You know, I, I, I went through a lot of imagination in, in those play times. And I, I think it really helped my uh, creativity for things I did when I got into medicine and innovations that I did. I had a, I had a fun household. My, my, uh, my dad was a minister and we didn't have much money, so he didn't get paid much. Uh, and, uh, but I, I didn't know it, you know, I mean, I, I played athletics all the time and I was on winning teams all the time and I had great buddies on those teams and nobody ever talked about money or, you know, I mean, uh, there just wasn't all that stuff going on today, you know, on teams, you know, you just, if your coach kicked your ass, you figured you deserved it, you know, you didn't go complaining. And uh, so uh, I think athletics helped me a lot too, because uh, it taught me teamwork. And uh, that was another thing that was really beneficial to me in my my practice was I, I had a great team. And uh, so I think growing up was uh, uh, I, I got a lot of good life lessons growing up. Tell me about your experience at Roosevelt High School in Des Moines. How did that shape you? I understand you're in the Hall of Fame there. Yeah, I'm, I am in the Hall of Fame. We won the state football title my senior year. But uh, I yeah, and my actually my dad moved to a different church. We lived over in the Roosevelt section of town through ninth grade. And then in high school, I, he moved to the section where it would have been North High. And I I wanted to go back to Roosevelt because that's where all my friends were. And I, that's where I wanted to play athletics. So my dad went downtown to talk to the Des Moines school board and they agreed with him to let me go to Roosevelt. So that's how I got to Roosevelt. And, uh, and uh, as I said, I had all my friends there and uh, we had good athletic teams. So that made made it fun. And I had great teachers, you know, I mean, uh, they stimulated me to want to learn and it was uh, really good. It was good enough that uh, when I went to college, I, I was able to pass out of four or five subjects in the freshman year because of my education at Roosevelt had been so good. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm honored to be in the hall of fame there. And, uh, I, I really enjoyed my time there. It was, uh, again, it was beneficial from the standpoint of teaching me how to study hard. Those teachers, they were, they were tough. And, uh, so I had to study to get my grades and I wanted to go to medical school. So I knew I had to get good grades to get into a college and, and then go on. So it was, uh, it was a good school. So when did you decide, I want to go to medical school, I want to pursue a, a career in medicine? When did that happen? <laughs> well, I was five years old. We were in Dayton, Iowa, a town of 750 people. And as I said, my dad was a minister. So there was a, a missionary that came through. His name was Bishop Rocky. And uh, he was a medical missionary in India. And he, 
he gave a talk at the church, which I don't remember at all, but I remember sitting with him on the parsonage steps. We had an old house, real narrow stairs upstairs, and we were sitting on the bottom steps there, and he was telling me about all the things he'd done in India, which enraptured me. And I ran upstairs, and I got my piggy bank that had nothing but pennies in it, I'm sure. came down and broke it and gave him the money and told him to go back to India and save some people that I'm paying for, and I'm going to be a doctor just like you. And uh, that's how it started, and it, it really never wavered. That's, that's what I always wanted to be. So you went to Cornell. I believe you played football there? Yeah. Yeah, I played football there. And again, we had really good teams. We, we won our conference. I Through high school and college, I only lost six football games. So we, I, was on, I was really lucky. I was on good teams. Uh, that, of course, makes it more fun. But it was good for socialization, too. You know, I, uh, I had good friends on those teams in college. You're in different fraternities and things. We had a not, not when we were on the team. I mean, we were, we were all one. And uh, I learned that. That was, that was a valuable lesson for uh, success in life, I think. And uh, I, again, I had good education there. I had no trouble getting into medical school. I, I went down and interviewed at Iowa and on a Friday. And on Monday, I had a letter in my box back at Cornell. I had a full tuition scholarship. So they respected Cornell, obviously. And I uh, I got a good education there and I got to play football. I, I wasn't good enough to play in the Big Ten. I was one uh, fast enough. I, my buddies off our state championship and went to Iowa, sat in the bench, and so I was really happy I went where I went because I started and played, and that was that was a lot more fun than sitting on a bench. So uh, it, it was a good experience for me, too. Tell me about medical school. What caused you to, to pivot into orthopedics, or did you know what all along? I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. No, you know, in medical school, I was going to always go into surgery. That was my personality. I mean, I just always have been kind of kind of aggressive, and uh, I like immediate gratification you know so like winning games it was immediate gratification but uh seeing a good result on a surgery is immediate gratification i kind of like that you know i worked on the farm every summer because all my relatives are farmers in iowa and uh you know kind of that was kind of fun too because you could see the crops growing things it was just kind of kind of the way i grew up so surgery was kind of an automatic for me and what i really wanted to do when i left medical school was be a heart surgeon I decided I was going to be the next DeBakey. You know, I took all my electives on heart surgery, and I got a master's doing cardiovascular research when I was in medical school. So that was my aim at the time. And what happened, after internship, I had to go to the military because it was Vietnam War time. And, and because of my master's, which was in pharmacology, I did vascular research in the pharmacology department. The Navy wanted me to do anesthesia. I agreed to do that, and they gave me a year on the job training, kind of like a year of residency. Then I spent two more years doing anesthesia. So during the time I was doing the anesthesia, I realized, you know, the orthopedic guys were, they were more my style than the than the general surgeons. And uh, Ken DeHaven was there with me. We were at Camp Pendleton, the Marine base. The Navy took care of the Marines. And Ken DeHaven was with me. And of course, he was president of the academy several years ago. And he played football at Dartmouth. So we just automatically, uh, we really... Uh, bonded and uh, we had a great year there together and we had fun talking old days in football but I mean we socialized a lot and everything and he'd had a year of general surgery was going back to his orthopedic residency so that also gave me a little impetus to go into orthopedics so I flipped and uh to orthopedics and that was really uh one of the best things I ever did because 
then it got me into total joint replacement, which was brand new then. And, and I walked right into a new area of medicine that gave me a lot of opportunities. Your license plate says airliner. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, that's Iowa City. That's the big bar in Iowa City, the airliner. And uh, so that's where I met my wife. And uh, we were there one night. I was, the booths are kind of small there, but in college, you know, you don't give a damn. And uh, there were six of us in one booth. And then the booth across the aisle from us, those six girls. And, and sitting in the middle on the same side I was on was, was Marilyn. And uh, I saw her and the next night we were at a party and the girl sitting next to her was uh, was at the party. And I said to her, oh, well, who will you sit next to? I said, I, she, she's kind of cute. And she said, well, she saw you too. She'd go out with you. So that's how it started. And 54 years of marriage later, why we're still together. Wow. So she put uh, airliner on her car and mine says liner too. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, any any tips for marital success to my audience? Well, you got to get through the first 10 years. Those are never, those were, those aren't always the easiest because you're, you're young in those days and, and you got to get used to living with somebody and you can't do everything your own way. And uh, I, I guess all or most of our fights were during those years, but kids kind of uh, help neutralize it because uh, you got to, take care of your kids and worry about them. So sometimes that, that, uh, neutralizes it. And you know what's If you stay with the same person, I'll tell you the benefits for it as you get older, are incomparable because you've gone through things together and you've, uh, you know, each other's habits and, uh, you like to do obviously the same things together. So a great benefit. Uh, if you can get through the first 10 years. 54 years. Congratulations. That's uh, that's awesome. So you went into practice in 1978. Uh, tell me about the state of joint replacement at that time. Yeah, well, it was really new. You know, I did my fellowship at Special Surgeries the year before, and and uh, I was with Ranawat and Alan Ingalls. And then, of course, Ranawat really became my mentor. And throughout most of my career, he was always a good go-to person because he was such a good surgeon, such a good thinker, and such a good man. At Special Surgery, they had just they just started doing the total condylar knee three or four years prior to maybe getting there. So knee replacement was really infantile. And uh and hip replacement had been in the United States maybe 10 years. And there were, of course, there were a lot of people doing it because it was such a magic operation, but there weren't a lot of people good at it. And uh, fortunately, I was studying with some of the people that really were good at it. Salvati was there and Ranawat was there and and, uh, and the knee insole was there and Ranawat. And so, I mean, uh, Tom Skoko was gone the year I was there because he was over in England with uh with Michael Freeman doing his fellowship, but uh, we've become really good friends since. Special surgery, it, it really kind of turned my life around because I left LA County where I'd done my residency and went to special surgery. And my residency, we didn't have anybody that was really a good surgeon as a staff person. We really didn't. We treated almost all the femur fractures and traction. And, and I just didn't have a good appreciation for surgery. But after a year of special surgery, watching superb surgeons operating with Ranawat being the, the best, I, I left there realizing you can really help people by operating on them. You know, I mean, this is a, it opened my eyes to that. And of course, that made 
made a big difference. But I'll tell you a fun story. I walked out of special surgery after my fellowship and I walked through the doors and I, I still remember walking the, the last time I walked out of the doors and I was on, on the way to go back to LA. And I said to myself, gee, I'm just a little bit too late, <laughs> which has been <laughs> funny ever since to me because you know, the knee was designed and a hip was designed, and I, I just didn't have a breadth of vision to understand all the changes that were going to happen. But uh, I kind of was lamenting the fact that I'd been just a few years too late when, in fact, I was right on time, you know. And so, and then when I went back to L.A., I went back to L.A. because uh, New York was full of a lot of surgeons that were involved with joint replacement, but L.A. had nobody except Amstutz. So when I came back to L.A., the only other known joint surgeon was Amstutz. And, in fact, he only did hips. So I was really the only fellowship-trained knee surgeon, knee replacement surgeon in in L.A. And uh, so that, of course, really boosted my career. Before we get too far away from Chip uh, Ranawaii, I believe you and him founded AUKUS. And it is so exciting to see uh, what that organization has grown into. Uh, tell me, what was the idea behind starting it, and, and how many people were at your first meeting? He and I were concerned because Merrill Ritter and Dick Rothman had been blackballed from the Hip Society. And they were blackballed because they were too entrepreneurial, you know, believe it or not, in today's world. But, you know, back then, uh, around 1990, I mean, they, there were still a lot of people who didn't like uh, people talking about the business of medicine, but both of them were very good at, at the business of medicine. And, uh, and so they, they were blackballed and then they were, they were kind of PO'd about it and they were going to, they were talking about starting a new organization. And uh, I didn't think it was a good idea to, to start another hip society. So, thought, why not start a society that uh, open to anybody that really does joint replacement they don't have to be doing research like the hip society getting hip society you got to be a, in the in the research and uh so that's that's kind of how it came about and uh we had a couple of organizational meetings with dick welch and uh we got jim rand involved because there was nobody better be taking notes and being a secretary than jim rand so we had him involved and and then we made the decision that the first president should be Phil Nelson, who was president of the Hip Society, because we had to get the Hip Society to go on board. And if we made Nelson the first president, why that would uh, that would force the Hip Society's hand. And so the Knee Society was not a problem because Chip and I were we kind of founded the Knee Society too, and. Uh, so, I mean, we weren't worried about the knee society, but we were worried about the hip society. But, so it all worked out in the very first meeting we had. It was 65 people, and uh, it, w- it was a time when Clinton was being elected, and Hillary Care was a big uh, subject at the time. So we made ourselves a C6 so we could uh, raise PAC money and uh, work against Hillary Care, and we did that. We had our own lobbyists. All 65 people each gave $1,000, so we had $65,000, which was quite a bit in that that time period. And uh, we, we had our own lobbyists in Washington. We did more than the academy. In fact, our work on that is what either uh, stimulated or forced the academy to become a C6 so they could have political influence because they, they didn't have any at all during that. We were the only real orthopedic group in there at Washington wow. pushing so. 
So that's how it started, and uh, boy, it's grown. I still kind of shocked at how big it's got. It definitely went beyond what I had envisioned. I didn't think it'd get this big. But that's a wonderful thing because uh, so many people who do joint replacement uh, have an organization to belong to, and then they go to the meetings and they learn something, you know? I mean, there aren't that many surgeons that read journals or they, they get more out if they go to meetings, and so it's uh, it's been good. Speaking of learning something, I remember back in the early 90s, uh, you had this course going on where you would do live surgery, invite some of the best surgeons to do live surgery, and then y'all would do a feed to a local hotel. Tell, tell me about that and uh, where it went and what happened to it. Yeah, that was called the Master Series, and it was really successful, and it was really, uh, yeah, it was really well received. I called it the Master Series because I did it in April, and that's when the golf master tournaments on and we brought in the best surgeons you know and that gave people a chance to see the best surgeons operate live and they came for one or two reasons they either wanted to learn something or they were hoping it'd be like the indianapolis 500 and surgeon would crash and they'd get to see, <laughs> see something big you know but we didn't have very many crashes but uh they all learned a lot because they got to see these really good surgeons operate. So yeah, that was uh, really successful. I started that, oh, about the same time I started operational walk, maybe around 94 or so. And it was really a strong meeting for a good 10 years, maybe a little more. Then I stopped it because I, I actually, the times were changing. When I first started doing it, it was really easy to get patients. I could talk them into letting an outside surgeon come in and operate on my patients. And Tell them, you know, you got this world-class surgeon and they'd like that idea. But as the internet got and social media got more and more popular, people would read up on you and they'd come in and they'd say, well, no, I, you know, I'm here because I want you to operate on me. And so I couldn't do that anymore. And uh, so the, what we had to do then the last few years, two, three, four years, we, we would have surgeons operate at their own hospital and we'd video that surgery in live. So it was still live surgery, but the surgeon wasn't there and they weren't there for panels and to talk and, and it lost a little of its luster doing it that way. That's why I'm not so sure all this virtual meeting stuff is going to go over very well. It didn't work yeah. so well with us, but that aside, that I kind of stopped it. When I went back to SC, we, we did it one more year and we had a good year when I ran it, but I said, that's the only year I'm going to do it. And Lieberman took it over the next year and he didn't know how to run it. So it bombed out and FC lost money in that. I don't think they wanted to do it anymore after that. We had a good run with it when we were running it. Uh, it was a popular meeting. Got some clinical questions for you. You were the first surgeon, I believe, to do a metal-on-metal -metal articulation in America. And I was just curious as to what was that like out there on that bleeding edge doing something like that? And are you still sold on that technology? Yeah, that started because Sulzer bought Intermedics. And so now Aaron and I were part of Sulzer instead of Intermedics. And in those days around then, which is like around 90, 91, you know, Aaron was a little more knee and I was a little more doing the hip for intermedics. And so the guy who was president of the intermedic said, Sulzer's wants to start doing metal on metal again. And uh, we're flying over to Switzerland and I want you to look at it. So I went over there and I operated with uh, one of the big guys with Sulzer and Protosol or whatever that company was. And he's the one that really redesigned the metal on metal with the polyethylene back in 28 millimeter head. I looked at all, I watched, you know, I watched them make it. They were, the precision was fabulous on that. And uh, for the wear data and everything was really good. So 
I came home and I started doing it. I was the only guy in the United States doing it from about 91 to maybe 95 when when they started an FDA IDE study. So yeah, I had I kind of had the only data on it during that time period. And so yeah, I was presenting in meetings, but it wasn't making much of an impact because nobody really had access to it. But I will tell you that those patients did fabulous. That 28 millimeter metal on metal head design, the lubrication on that and the clearance was just perfect. And all those patients that I operated in the early 90s with the stuff that I, you know, that Saltzer gave me, is their hips were still in. It worked really, really well. And then something happened when, when they went to big head metal on metal, you know, something happened with the engineering. They didn't get it right. They they didn't get the clearance right or they, they didn't get the lubrication right. Something went wrong. And that's why they had so many troubles with it. It, it either can't be engineered or it wasn't engineered, one or the other. I started doing, you know, I, for Zimmer, I, I did, uh, Zimmer had that uh, Durham and they, they wanted me to do a study with it. So I did it and, you know, I got into the study with it and I realized this was not working and we started having loose cups and patients getting reoperated in six months. And so I told them, uh, they, they needed to get rid of that. And, uh, they decided they didn't want to do that. So that's when I sent a letter out to everybody saying to the AHKS members, I sent a letter out saying, well, that went viral. Everybody had it within 24 hours. I, re- I remember when that happened. <laughs> That letter went viral so fast. Yes, it did. So anyway, that was uh, that. That's what happened, and uh, so then I spent a year redoing Durham operations and doing depositions and lawyers and everything else. It was a mess. But anyway, the, you know, as you well know, the big head metal and metal just never worked. Twenty eight sure did though. Boy, those patients are still some of the best I got for long term. I did a few of those metasoles back in the day, and I, I just thought it was an interesting concept. The whole sandwich idea, never revised one. I mean, it's anecdotal, but uh, they all seem to do very well. And, the, the you know, their ion levels were not high either. Again, the small head. That was, that was a good design, but it didn't survive the move to big heads and didn't survive the bad, bad name metal on metal got, so... It's not around anymore. Uh, you designed one of the first uncemented stems yep. uh, on a napkin in New Orleans, I believe. What what stem would that eventually become? Well, Chit and I, uh, the, the, there was a, these people got this money up to start the company Intermedics. And uh, the guy that was president of the Intermedics, I can't remember his name right now, bond-headed guy, nice guy, but uh, kind of a kind of a sharpster. He and I and Ranawat. We're sad that we were at the academy and must have been 82 in New Orleans. That was the Louis the 14th Hotel. And we were in the restroom and sat, and we sat there and, and uh, ran out and I designed this short stem hip. It was really just, it just fit into the metaphysis is all it did. He was kind of, you know, it was a time where there was all kinds of ideas going around because non-cemented implants were, there were no playbook on them and everything was on kind of untested. So I came home and I designed that and uh, I put in four of them. The patients would love them because, you know, there was no stem. So they didn't know, no one had any thigh pain or anything, but the coating was too weak in those days. And so with a metaphyseal-only implant, there's a lot of air stress on it. And what happened was that the implants would pull away from the coating. So 
I'd revise them and the coating would be grown in to the bone and the implant had pulled away from the coating. So actually our histology was the very first with those, with those uh, implants, our histology, which I published in a journal that was run by Harvey, who had been my chief in residency. And that journal went away kind of when he went away, he died. So we published that histology. It was the first human histology proof that human bone grew into the porous coating. They had a lot of animal, but that was the first human. Um, but that, uh, you know, that made me realize we had to put some sort of a stem on it. So I spent a lot of time in my garage, to tell you the truth, cutting up bones and ran them out. And I decided we both look at what we thought would be a appropriate design. He was doing it in New York and I was doing it out here and I was working in my garage and I was cutting bones. And I remember Christmas Eve day, 1982, I took all these cut bones into our radiology department because there weren't any patients there on Christmas Eve day. And I spent an hour x-raying those bones. And I came up with the idea that, you know, the design that a bent stem or a curved stem was, it fit the bone the best. I went back and we, we had a meeting in New York and Ranawat had come up, same idea too. He just told me to go ahead and work up the hip up because he had other stuff going on. So I did. And I worked with Intermedics and came up with the APR hip. It went through uh, three design iterations, but the last design iteration with circumferential coating on the top and grip blasting on the stem, which we started in around 93, 94, somewhere in that time frame. But anyway, that stem was fabulous. I mean, it's anybody that uses it never, I mean, it's kind of been one of those things that just hadn't been any revisions of it. Rich Cataret, who was my guy out here, you know, he, he was with Zimmer after they bought us. He always would tell everybody he, he'd put in thousands of them and never taken one out. So it was a very good stem, but it was too hard to put in. It, it didn't get a lot of play because tapered stems were so easy and they were right stem, let they, you know, they, they go right and left, whereas a, a bent stem has to go both right and left. You have to have more inventory, and they're harder to put in. They, they just you, you had to hit them harder, and that scared a lot of guys that are going to break the bone. So that's why it didn't ever um, it didn't ever make real high volume sales, but it it had great success. It's kind of one of those things where it worked, but it, but it was technically difficult. What's the uh, what's the craziest thing you've ever designed? <laughs> Maybe a knee design I did in the late 80s. I did a knee design. It ended up a little bit like the titanium uh, knee that Arlen Hansen did at Mayo. The non-cemented titanium with the two pegs on it, you know, two round uh, bottom pegs that you pounded in. Uh, I, I designed one that was a little bit like that that with instruments that you could put in like it was a one-piece knee, and but it was kind of like two unis put together. and You never saw the light of day. <laughs> But it, it, I, I put it in some patients and it worked and a few of them died with it. But uh, yeah, it was kind of crazy. Uh, tell me about modular versus non-modular hip revisions. What's, what's your thoughts on that? I never never liked modular hip revisions. and they, Actually, my favorite revision stem, I did a couple. I We did one called The Precedent that I did with Ken, uh, what's his name, in Houston. And the uh, stem worked real well. But again, it was... Uh, kind of hard to put in and uh my favorite revision stem actually was one i didn't resign which was the wagner i just uh i, I think the wagner is the best revision stem ever designed and uh we still use it on operation walk i i actually put it in over in thailand about a year ago i mean i'd still 
if I were doing a lot of revisions, I'd probably be using that stem. I the the modular has the two the two things about it that that I'm not a big fan of is that it can break at the modular junction, and secondly, it's just one more source of uh, ions and debris. You know, so I uh, I never was a big fan of it. I think it would lose out if somebody ever did a comparative study against a Wagner. What's your uh, What's your philosophy on using screws in the acetabulum? Yeah, I I've always avoided that. I uh, I had a fun debate with John Callahan once on that, and uh, I ended the debate by saying the only screw that will ever be remembered in history. And I had a picture of Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky <laughs> together. <laughs> That's awesome. But uh, maybe I just kind of like the surgical challenge of getting the cup to fit without a screw, you know. Uh, but the other re- the reason that I'm not a very patient person, and, and I just hated it when I was trying to put a screw in and, and it would strip or... It wouldn't go seat all the way down, and, and I hated taking them out at revisions, too. So I just didn't have a love affair with screws. That's all. I, I tried to avoid them whenever I could. I was able to put 95% of my cups in without a screw. That's awesome. The, the, the osteoporotic people, you, you'd have to use them sometimes. But I, I did a lot of revisions without them, too, but I gave in to using them more in revisions because you just had to. I, I remember a knee back in the day called the Apollo knee. Yeah. And it it was a it was a flash. I didn't see it for very long because I think I I came in on it at the tail end, but what do you remember about that and and any thoughts on universal femurs? Uh well, the answer to universal femurs I think is a smart idea. It's just particularly in today's world where money is tight and it's going to be even tighter after this covid thing. I mean, medicine's broke right now. Uh, the hospitals yeah. all lost big money. Doctors lost big money. Yeah, implant companies had to lose money. They weren't selling their, the elective surgery was way down. So, I mean, everybody's kind of in the red and it's going to, you don't make it up in one year. And, uh, so there's going to have to be some changes made, you know, just like they're making noise about making the drug companies sell, uh, drugs cheaper. Yeah. There's going to get to be noise about selling implants cheaper. And, uh, one way to do that is to have something you don't have to do rights and lefts with, you know, and it works. I mean, uh, no reason you can't do it. And uh, Aaron actually very brilliantly designed uh, a trochlear system that designed so that, that you get a little bit of the tracking for the patella left and right on the trochlear with a, uh, you know, with a universal femur. So it can be done. The, it's just habit, you know. Surgeons get into habits, and surgery stressful enough, and they don't want complications. They want to use something they're familiar with, and the more options they got, it they, they feel more comfortable too. So, all those things play into it, really. But uh, you just have to look at what the track record of the total condor was. You know, I mean, uh, it had a great track record. So did the uh, IB knee, and uh, so it's That's just fine. gotten to be the habit for people to have rights and lefts, but it's not necessary. Um, people try to make the knee more complicated than, than it is, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I mean, it's, you can't make the knee normal. You just have to make it work with the implants. And, uh, it's, uh, you, you're turning it more into kind of a, kind of a hinge. You know, you really don't have the screw hole mechanism and everything. And to try and build a screw hole mechanism in there doesn't mean it's going to happen. I think, uh, 
I think universal knees are, they, I think they have a feature to be honest with you. And, uh, the Apollo was one of those. And, uh, the Apollo came about only because Aaron and I had a little bit of a dispute going on about knees at the time. I was more in favor of a total collar design and he was more in favor of a PCA type design. And, uh, and we just weren't meeting on that. So intermedics made the Apollo, but they didn't ever really market it because they did so well with the natural. Neither they they kind of made it just to satisfy me. Is what they did, <laughs> but it became a great Operation Walk Me. We used it on Operation Walk all the time. Uh, awesome. And Aaron Aaron saw it on Operation Walk and used it and liked it actually. And so that's kind of how the classic knee uh, came about to being only you know universal femur. So. It has that legacy about it. That's that's the legacy of it. But you're right. It wasn't around much. There weren't that many people doing it. I was very honored to have on this show Dr. Aaron Hoffman and uh, hearing him talk about Operation Walk. It's just a really uh, it's 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 got to be a really rewarding thing to to be a part of. How did that get going? I'm sure you've told this story a million times, but uh, how did it get going? And I think you're going on what 25 years now. Yeah, we're getting close to that. Yeah, 1994, I went to Russia. The Russian, they had a Russian surgery. Invited me over there to operate, and so I took a small team with me. I took a couple of anesthesiologists and an internist, and, and actually, Rich Cataret went with me as an implant guy. And, and Intermedic sent the implants over in advance, and so had APR and hips and uh and and intermedic knees and uh when we got there I was just shocked at what the orthopedics was in Russia. You know, I here I was a kid that growing up in Iowa they they used to make us do drills where we had to hide under our desk because in case the Russians came over to bomb us we had to learn how to hide under our desk. And so I mean I had this vision of this wow. this uh, powerful country and we got over there and uh they were a mess i i came home thinking they there's no sense for them going to war they can't they had enough money to last a week the main orthopedic hospital the one where sivash i don't know if you know the sivash prosthesis but they had the museum for the sivash prosthesis and they told me they told me all of me put in they'd taken out so they they were and they had a, they had a bunch of glass cases with with sivash prosthesis they pulled out but that was the main orthopedic hospital in Russia, and uh, it's in Moscow, and that's where we operated. And, I mean, we walked up to that hospital, and the weeds were up to our knees at the door, you know. I mean, I said, hell, I used to cut these weeds down on the farm in Iowa, you know. And when I washed my hands, I just used soap at a regular sink, and then they had me put my arms, forearms and hands into a bowl of acetic acid, and they gave me a little hourglass. And the hour—I had to leave it in there until the sand had run through the hourglass. That's how, how you decide how long to do that. I went into the OR, and the scrub nurse touched my skin, putting the gloves on, and I look over at the guy uh, prepping the leg, and he's using his bare hands. And I—I just—I—I I was just kind of shocked about how, and they had no idea on how to do a knee. I mean, uh, they had done some hips, but they weren't very good at that either. Cause the, the head surgeon there did a hip and I, I kind of watched him do one and, uh, and he didn't really know what he was doing. So I came away from there thinking, you know, if Russia, you know, is so poorly 
trained in surgery and, and joint replacement. I mean, the rest of the world's got to be bad too. I mean, you know, we, we were in a cocoon in the United States where, uh, you know, I mean, we didn't know how good we had it. So I came home and I, and I talked to Jerry Ward and my, who was my manager and my, the head of my OR, Mary Ellen, and we decided we could try, try doing this. I got this vision that we'd go to other countries and teach them how to operate. And then our first trip was, uh, 1997 to Cuba, and that's how it started. And now, yeah, it's 20. There's 20 chapters in the United States. There's two in Canada. There's one in Ireland. There's one in Thailand. And it's been a success story, a little bit similar to the to AHKS. You know, I mean, it just it multiplied way more than I ever ever thought it would. I remember at one point y'all were doing replacements here in the States uh, for people that were underprivileged. And I was just curious, is that still going on or? Well, it's going on, but uh, I, that, that was a project that Adolph Lombardi took up and uh, they, they made a big deal about it for a couple of years. And then subsequently he, he seems to have lost some interest in it. Nothing really has happened the last couple of years. Operation walks now hooked into AHKS. HKS has a national governing board for Ropwalk. So I think we're going to gear up more in the United States again. I'm, I'm negotiating right now to start taking care of the Indians in the United States and Native Americans because their, their medical care is so poor. And the man that's in charge of the medical care for, for them here in California, uh, we were all hooked ready to go. I was hoping we were going to operate this fall, but COVID got in the way. So uh, we haven't had the meeting yet and I haven't finalized it yet, but it'll happen. So I think one of the things that we'll be able to do is uh, help our own American Indian population, which will be meaningful and uh, and satisfying, I think. How do you think COVID is going to affect all these global missions? Uh, I, I think that it'll make it a little harder raising money for a little while. Uh, I don't think it'll be devastating at all. We didn't go on anything this year because of it, but we're kind of geared up to go next year. And uh, I was on my way to Ethiopia to set up a mission trip there. And that got canceled too because of the virus. Uh, but we'll go to, we'll go get that one started after uh, we can travel again. And I think a lot of the bigger ones will be all right. Probably. Operation Smile will be all right too. I think. I think maybe there might be some smaller ones, just like smaller hospitals that don't make it out alive on this thing. But uh, we'll be all right. You know, when I did research uh, on you, I was amazed at what a trail you've blazed on the research side. The door bone types. I mean, I, I quote that all the time. How did you come up with that? So clearly, in the eighties, uh, I got into into the non cemented uh, fixation world, and that became my that became my main research. You know, I was hanging out with uh, Tony Headley and uh, and Aaron and Leo Whitesides and uh, Les Borden and uh, uh, you know, I mean, all of us were into the non-cemented. Uh, we were all young and feisty and into something new and uh, trailblazing. And uh, I realized that by looking at the X-rays and things that you know, all these bones aren't the same. And I wonder if there's going to be a difference in terms of how they do with non-cemented fixation. I hooked up with the uh, bone metabolism guy here at USC. His name is Hart Malukian. He moved from here to Kentucky, and uh, I haven't seen him for a while. But 
But I hooked up with him, and uh, he could tell me, he said, that from the uh, about the different bones if I just gave him samples. So I started the project, and uh, what we did was we gave people tetracycline two weeks before surgery and then just a couple days before surgery, and how much bone grew between the two. The tetracycline gives you a uh, kind of an orange-colored band in the bone. So between the two bands, you could see how much bone grew, you know, and uh, then he could look at the individual cells and see how many of the cells there were and how well they were replicating. So we were able to really do a good uh, analysis of of the bone, and uh, it it broke out very clearly into the ABC types, and there might even be a D type, which is, you know, basically almost dead bone, but. It broke out very well, both uh, in the bone cell types, uh, how you know their growth and their their multiplication, and in the overall structure. We took the bone analysis, and then I went back and looked at the X-rays, and by matching X-rays to bone cell metabolism, it, it, I I came up with the three types, and they broke out pretty clearly. So, and and it uh, it obviously is has been validated so many times that it's, uh, that we were right. Uh, We got it right. But it was, uh, it was, it was a interesting project because when I did it, I really didn't have a very much of a name yet. I was still kind of a young, young lion. And, uh, so I didn't have a lot of clout with journals and things like today. I would, I would, I could, make noise and we got have gotten it published but every orthopedic journal turned it down and that's why it ended up being published in bone because uh maluki was on the board of bone and that's why we got it published in that journal but it's probably one of the most cited orthopedic classifications today and so i i imagine any of the orthopedic journals wish they had it because it would increase their impact factor Malcolm Gladwell has spoken extensively about the innovator, and you're certainly uh, that person. I'm just curious as to, of all the innovations that you've put out there into our space over all these years, which one is the one that you're the most proud of? The suspense is killing you, isn't it? Well, it's killing me too. I can't wait till next week. It's going to be amazing. He tells some incredible stories. But the answer to the question, what is the one thing he is the most proud of? You're going to have to wait on that. But if you can't wait, and if you think you know the answer, go to LinkedIn on the post advertising this episode and give me your answer. The first person to get it right, I'm going to send them hot off the presses a sticker that I had made for the back of my car that is a tree of Andre, and it is unbelievably cool. Show the world your love for orthopedics. So send me your answer, and the first person to get it right, you're getting a sticker. Quick reminder, 2513 device, 2513 device. Send me your true stories from the OR and medical device, things that make you laugh. We need a break, right? Everything's so heavy, and a lot of people are angsty right now. So we're going to do an episode that's going to put a smile on everybody's face. I think it's going to be so much fun. You're going to want to be around for next week. Dr. Dorr just digs deeper into some historical stuff and amazing stories. I just want to say a huge thanks for you taking time out of your life to 
to listen to this content. And I think this content is just great for all of us, right? Because the only thing new under the sun is the history you don't know. And getting to hear the stories from these legends in this industry just makes us broader as reps and helps us understand where things came from and, and just makes us better. It just makes us better. So I look forward to getting back together with all of you next week. And again, thank you so much. I appreciate each and every one of you. Device Nation. 